Well, I'm very honored to be here in Manchester today for this special edition of the Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon. These rendezvous were born of a sincere and profound desire to share my passion for literature and to shine a light on its role in the emancipation of women. For the past three years, we have welcomed writers and friends of the house to discuss their work and literary inspirations. I arrived in Manchester two days ago and was greeted with a performance by the great John Cooper Clarke at the very stylish Opest Destroyed. Probably the best way to dive straight into the mood of this city. I also had a chance to discover more about the history of the city in relation to the suffragettes movement. I hope you will agree with me that words and women's emancipation seem to form an intrinsic part of Manchester's DNA. And what a shame it would have been not to take this opportunity to discuss the many powers of words and literature. In this regard, I'm thrilled to be surrounded by very talented women today. Manchester-born writer Jeanette Winterson, <laughs> who had already participated in one of our rendezvous in London, where she gave us a memorable lecture on the work and the legacy of Virginia Woolf. If you haven't watched it, I urge you to do so. Jeanette, thank you for being back with us and for welcoming us in your native city. With us today as well is actress Kristen Stewart, whose passion for literature is deep and profound. If you still doubt it, you need to watch the short video in the library with Kristen Stewart that you can find on the Chanel www.com. <laughs> <laughs> I was and still am very impressed. Kristen, thank you for accepting my invitation. It's been a pleasure working with you on this event. And finally, journalist and writer Erica Wagner sharing this discussion with us with her usual wit. Erica, the floor is now yours. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Well, yes, I'm Erica Wagner, and I am so delighted to be here in Manchester with Chanel to take part in this very special edition of Les Rendezvous Littéraires Rue Cambon. Manchester is a UNESCO city of literature. It is rich with libraries, publishers, universities, arts and culture festivals, including, of course, the Manchester Literature Festival. It has been the home and source of writers and radicals, such as Anthony Burgess, Emmeline Pankhurst, Lem Sisse, Carol Ann Duffy, John Cooper Clark, Ian McGuire, Elizabeth Gaskell, and Jeanette Winterson, to name just a few. More on Jeanette in a moment, of course. So Chanel could not come to Manchester without a discussion of our love of books and literature. We are here for a wind-ranging, and I am sure passionate conversation about the texts that mean the most to us and why However much we are drawn to other art forms, fashion or films or visual art, reading will always hold a central place in our hearts and souls. You have already met Charlotte, so I will briefly introduce our other two brilliant panelists. Jeanette, as you heard, was born in Manchester and raised in Accrington. Her adoptive parents were religious, As evangelical Pentecostals, they believed that my destiny was to be a missionary, Jeanette has written. 
They were right, as it turned out, but in an unexpected way, she said. And indeed, all her life, she has been an evangelist for literature, a true preacher of the word, and it has been my joy to follow her and be inspired by her. She is the author of many books, including Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, The Passion, Frankenstein, and Twelve Bites. Her latest is a wonderful collection of ghost stories, Night Side of the River. She has been awarded an OBE and a CBE, and honorary PhDs from Oxford and from Manchester, where she is professor of new writing on their excellent creative writing MA. Lucky students and lucky us today. Kristen Stewart wore Chanel for the first time in 2007 at the Toronto Film Festival at the premiere for Into the Wild. She attended the 2010 Met Gala as a guest of Chanel, and three years later was appointed a Chanel ambassador and has always been a wonderful friend of the house. She has been the face of many Chanel campaigns in the years since, most recently of the spring-summer 2023 Ready to Wear collection campaign. Her film career has, of course, been stellar, beginning with her appearance opposite Jodie Foster in Panic Room in 2002. She shot to global fame with the Twilight films, of course. Her choices have always been adventurous and thoughtful. I think of her as Jean Seberg in the 2019 film directed by Benedict Andrews. She was remarkable in Pablo Larraín's biographical drama, Spencer, and was nominated for the Best Actress Academy Award. She became the first American actress to be awarded a César Award in the Best Supporting Actress category, for her role in Olivier Assayas' 2015 film, Clouds of Sils Maria. And she is shortly to make her feature film debut as a director with the chronology of water, starring Imogen Poots, hence the discussion of pools, I think. So welcome, Kristen, and welcome, everyone. I'm so excited for this discussion. So we're going to begin with some readings, and Charlotte is going to kick us off. Perhaps you'd like to tell us what you're going to read. Well, I chose um, an extract um, of a book from Jeanette from Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, <laughs> <laughs> which is a, a book I really adore. And um, yeah, so I'm going to read you this. I was very quiet for a while, but I had realized something important. Whatever is on the outside can be taken away at any time. Only what is inside you is safe. I began to memorize texts. We had always memorized long chunks of the Bible, and it seems that people in oral traditions have better memories than those who rely on stored text. There was a time when record-keeping wasn't an act of administration, it was an art form. The earliest poems were there to commemorate, to remember across generations, whether a victory in battle or the life of the tribe. The Odyssey, Beowulf, are poems, yes, but with a practical function. If you can't write it down, how will you pass it on? You remember, you recite. 
the rhythm and image of poetry make it easier to recall than prose, easier to chant. But I needed prose too. And so I made my own concise versions of 19th century novels, going for the talismanic, not worrying much about the plot. I had lines inside me, a string of guiding lights. I had language. Fiction and poetry are doses, medication. What they heal is the rupture reality makes on the imagination. I had been damaged, and a very important part of me had been destroyed. That was my reality, the facts of my life. But on the other side of the facts was who I could be, how I could feel, and as long as I had words for that, images for that, stories for that, then I wasn't lost. There was pain. There was joy. There was painful joy Eliot had written about. My first sense of that painful joy was walking up to the hill above our house, the long, stretchy streets with a town at the bottom and a hill at the top, the cobbled streets, the streets that went straight to the factory bottoms. I looked out, and it didn't look like a mirror or world. It was the place I was, not the place where I would be. The books had gone. But they were objects. Why they held could not be so easily destroyed. What they held was already inside me, and together we would get away. And standing over the smoldering pile of paper and type, still warm the next cold morning, I understood that there was something else I could do. Fuck it, I thought. I can write my own. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Very moving to listen to you read that here with Jeanette. Just tell us briefly why you chose that extract. That the healing power of literature is so important in that text. Well, I think this text talks a lot about trauma and resilience, and it's such a complex and fascinating process. And what a traumatic experience does is that. It kind of disrupts time and the capacity to imagine anything else. And I think that literature has that power, in a way, to to be able, maybe, to imagine something else, to give you words,、um, maybe to rebuild something, but also、um, having the words of others that have overcome. Traumatic experiences, and sometimes you can't find these words, and they're given to you as well by others. And yeah, I just、um, think that we can feel that quest for survival and the intensity of the relationship Jeanette has to words, and and I feel very close to that.、Um, and I love it when you say it's doses medication. I do feel that every day when I read books. So yeah, it's it's the way I felt about it. How do you feel about that young person now, Jeanette? <laughs> She's still here.、Um, my mother had just burned all my books before this passage started. She'd I'd been putting them under my bed, and if you have a single bed, standard size, and a collection of paperbacks, standard size, you can fit seventy-four per layer under the mattress. <laughs> 
but you know, my bed had been rising visibly, and my mother had noticed this. She was a paid-up member of the KGB, and she had pulled a book out, and the whole lot had come down, like me as well, and she threw them all into our little backyard and poured paraffin over them and set them on fire. And that, of course, is where this passage comes from, because that's when I understood the, a, a really profound truth, that if it's outside you, they can take it. No matter how, how privileged, wealthy, safe you feel, you know what the world looks like right now. It can all go, and all we would have would be what we could carry with us in our minds, in our hearts, with our language, if we all had to go. What would you take with you that would sustain you through what was to come? And that is why, you know, I love what you say about the idea that we have our language inside us, because that's where, it's an oral tradition first, isn't it? Because words begin in the mouth before they land on the page. You learn to speak before you can read. And so it is there for us, this, this strange, complex craziness of language is also the thing that we have when we're tiny. Mm. And if we hold that, if we treasure it, which is what I did, it can take us forward into all sorts of places. Look, I mean, when you were reading this, I'm thinking, what am I doing sitting here in the Victoria Baths with <laughs> Chanel, thinking about that kid watching her books on fire in the backyard? And language has brought me here. That's where they can take you. I've come here on words. They're my flying carpet. Here I am. That's what I feel. Marvelous. <laughs> Thank you. And Kristen, I think that leads very nicely into what you're going to read to us. <laughs> yeah, it's just this, the, the, the repossession of framing and, and just knowing that language is really only recently, we've only really been allowed to feel like we own it and, and to repossess and then repurpose and restory over trauma is the only way to get out. And, uh, we women. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll read this really quick, but I feel like one of my favorite lines from The Chronology of Water is, make up shit, because they've been making it up forever, and it's all man-made, you know? In fact, also this, this idea of a memory or a history being a long string full of knots, and you're like, well, just undo them and make the knots where you want to make them. There is a, an inherent isolation to living. We put our heads on our pillows, we're alone. This is the way we can sort of, like, reach out towards each other. But women in that equation, it's just, we've barely, it's been a split second. You see someone try and struggle to find a word, and when it lands, and when it's the right one for them, and it kind of dictates their reality instead of something sort of more oppressive and framed by a patriarchal perspective, reframing is everything. I can always find silver lining and be like, yeah, you know, if you think about it differently, if you write it differently, then it is different, and you change history. Um, so this is from a book called Heroines. Yeah, and so this is kind of like a... This is a book that this woman, Kate Zambrino, wrote, I feel like, over 10 years while she was trying to find her voice as a writer. She was unpublished for a while. She was following around her academic husband, who she adores and who's probably great, but I would love to have watched him read this book. <laughs> um, and it's just her kind of... Uh, relating to and forging intimate relationships with historical literary figures, like the women that were locked out of modernism, basically. And uh, so it's kind of a book of, of utterances. It doesn't, but it really comes together and it's beautiful and I love it and here we go. So a woman was not allowed to be moody or silent or sullen or to abandon the keeping of the house, the keeping of the husband. T.S. Eliot could face the immense disapproval of his parents when he ditched his dissertation at Harvard and set about to be a great poet. 
Yet these were not dreams most women, especially in traditional roles, could often voice out loud. In the awakening, both the husband and doctor alarmed at Edna's pale peakedness, her excitable state after spending a whole day painting, choosing to be alone and with her work, as opposed to obeying social rituals like house calls. In women, this is seen as a sign of illness. I do not challenge the idea that there was a feverish tinge to Zelda's practice. Bordering on obsession. I'm not arguing that she wasn't in some form of distress, that she didn't have some mental health stuff going on, but I think we choose to call it pathological. Don't we also romanticize that sort of obsession in the history of art and literature? And this is when it gets really good. In Flaubert's house, servants and everyone in the household tiptoed around him in the AM while he worked, until he rang the bell, his cursory unspoken cue. A servant would run up and hand him a glass of water, which he would drink, and a newspaper, which he would scan. Then he'd pound the wall. <laughs> His mother would come and sit and converse with him, a happy helpmate, lunch, a long leisurely walk. Then the work, met with trembling and awe by the others, evenings of society and reading out loud to his writer friends, the occasional excursions to Paris to fuck his mistress. This is before he ever published a thing, except something in a local paper. <laughs> he was milked and fed and cultivated and allowed. He was encouraged and enabled to become Flaubert. Same with Tom. He was allowed to write The Wasteland. Waited on hand and foot by Vivi once at home. His nerves tended to, his absolute exhaustion treated. She nursed him through several collapses. When she collapsed, he would perennially send her away. Although he did work constantly, too much, everything was spiritually in the service of his eventual great art. The bell is spirit, Ezra Pound's monetary campaign to allow him to be a writer. Save the poet! and lines built upon lines. That is how one writes, slowness and weight. And in the isolation of that room, a belief in oneself that could be construed as monstrous. In one's own eventual greatness, no little voices that wormed through to whisper in one's ear, sick, sick, sick. What is seen as signs of great artistry in a man can be seen as alarm in a woman's behavior. So besides the isolation of the room that all writers and artists suffer under, beautifully, there is an active campaign against women to pathologize their struggle, their torment, or to have this done for them. The narrator in the yellow wallpaper feeling she wouldn't feel so nervous and so fatigued if she didn't always have to struggle against the husband, the good sister-in-law, society. If she was given permission to be, to not have to hide her writing or hide everything, her body, writing is so physical. We have been denied our physicality, so how could we write? And we do. Yeah. And so... So as you say, that's the thing. It's interesting how these two yeah. pieces... Spot on that. Yeah. How does it feel to you, again, just to, to hear these two extracts together, how women can heal themselves and, and take possession of themselves. Is that something that you found through other books, too? Absolutely. I, I think it needs to be quiet. There's a loneliness that you have to indulge in order to actually get to the root of, of, of certain pains that, that then can be storied over, repurposed, and made positive. Like, I think there's also something odd happening. Like, there is this just awakening. I absolutely love the kind of idea that if... if if you don't do something outside of yourself and you're not making a larger statement, then it is, it is not capital A art. It's not fine literature. It's, it's, it's because they're negating completely the idea of self within purpose 
full writing, and that is female writing. There's no way to not scream, I, me, me, confessional, diary, me, absolutely, all of it, I'm all in there. It's like, oh, well, that's not very smart. That's just a girl who's confessing. She might as well be in a confessional booth. It's, uh, it's just a way. It's But you're just, so right about that. Yeah. And it's, it's been done, it's, it's been seen as a, as a way of shutting women up. Yeah. That you can only write about what is small or domestic or particular or personal. And that women aren't dealing with the, the larger matters of the, the imagination and the, and the outside world. And it's been a way of labeling and containing, hasn't it? And of course, we're breaking it. out of that. Yeah. But we also have to say, look, You know, there is no Archimedean point outside the self from which you can write. It is here or it is nowhere. And it's not from the neck up. It's mm. everything. Mm. You know, it's your guts, your liver, your spleen, your blood, your illness, your wellness. <laughs> everything that is here is where we start from. And men have understood that because they're allowed to inhabit their bodies and because women are separated from their bodies mm. except as sexual objects or objects of display. We have not been able to say, no, this is all of me, all of me I bring to it, not part of me, all of me, because the experience of a woman has been to be fragmented. Mm. And it's interesting too now, I, I really do think to think about Chanel, Kristen and I were talking about the liberation when the House of Chanel began, how women could be comfortable in clothes, and that leads to, I wonder if you think that leads to a larger liberation, Charlotte? Yeah, of course, the liberty of movement is something very important, and the idea that, um, yeah, that can be, you know, inhabiting uh, your own body and, and having the possibility um, to, to move the way you want, I mean, it seems so banal. Now we're going to see a very interesting perception of womanhood, northern womanhood, femininity. Can you tell us artistry? Oh, this is great. This is fantastic. Yeah, can so you introduce what we're going to we see? We can see this. Um, this is a clip. It's from the Sheila Delaney, Salford playwright, wrote A Taste of Honey, which was first done uh, down in London at the Stratford East Theatre with the legendary Joan Littlewood producer. It's then made into a fabulous movie, which I'm sure lots of you have seen. Um, but this, she was just this young woman who knew her voice and knew what she wanted to say. And I wanted you to see this clip in a way to see how far we've come. Uh, but also it means, it means so much to me because she, I was born the, the year that she's speaking and she becomes a private ancestor. Men have got so many ancestors. They look back and they just see millions of themselves. We see very few still. And this is a big one for me. Mm. So you're going to love this. Mr. Lenny, you must be feeling pretty excited about tonight. Have you got the butterflies? No, I've just got a very bad cold at the moment, and that's all that's worrying me. How do you anticipate the critics will receive your play? Uh, well, I'd be very interested to, to read what the critics say, but I really feel that the best form of criticism, the, the form that I find most, most rewarding anyway, is that when, you know, somebody off the street, like when the play was at Stratford and all those sort of cafes, the locals, like, came in, you know, the bricklayers and the uh, cleaners and everything, when they said it was good and they enjoyed it, I knew they meant it. And it was much more rewarding for me that way. How much help did you have in writing your play? Um, well, originally, when I wrote the original thing, I, 
I didn't have any hope at all, you know, I just wrote it. But when I um, it's went into production, I think Joan Littlewood is the most sort of valuable person I've ever met, as far as work's concerned. She is producing the play? Yeah. Your play draws a sordid theme. Where did you gather your information? Uh, I just uh, applied my imagination to my observation. That's a safe answer. Observation where? In your native language? Yeah. You are. Well, it had to be there. I'd never been anywhere else. I understand you're getting married soon. No, I'm not getting married soon at all, no. It's been reported. It has been, yeah, but, you know, I mean, that sort of thing isn't usually very reliable, is it? <laughs> And so this leads us to Virginia Woolf. Oh, so it does. And it's Virginia Woolf from A Room of One's Own, so in 1929, so the year before she's published Orlando, first trans novel, you know, Orlando, the young nobleman, whizzes through 400 years, uh, starts as a man, then as a woman. So she's done that. She's having a love affair with Vita Sackville-West. It's 1929. They've been together to Cambridge. And Woolf gives... A Room of One's Own was initially two lectures that she delivered at Cambridge. She went with Vita. Vita drove her in the car. Uh, and they gave this. And these were the early women's colleges. So women couldn't get degrees from Cambridge then. They didn't get degrees from Cambridge until the 1940s, astonishingly. They used to have what they called a titular Bachelor of Arts, and, and the boys called it B.A. Tit. Well, they would, wouldn't they? So women couldn't get degrees. You, uh, you could at Oxford in 1922, but not at Cambridge. So Wolfe gave these lectures, which became a room of one's own, which, as you know, is where she's saying a woman needs £500 a year and a room of her own, the space, the silence that you were talking about, just to sit back and do it. There she was saying, this is what women need. It's the basic stuff that men expect. And then she thought, well, what would it be like if women had these things, that they weren't like Jane Austen, hiding it under the embroidery every time somebody came in, and they weren't like the Bronte having to get wet all the time because they lived up north. And what she comes out with is, she, she, she's reading it, and she says, she, she has a fictional author called Mary Carmichael, and she said, she'd broken up Jane Austen's sentence and thus given me no chance of pluming myself upon my impeccable taste, my fastidious ear. For it was useless to say, yes, yes, this is very nice, but Jane Austen wrote much better than you do. When I had to admit that there was no point of likeness between them, that Mary Carmichael had gone further, broken the sequence, the expected order, and perhaps she'd done this unconsciously, merely giving things their natural order, as a woman would, if she wrote like a woman. And then she goes on to talk about that, because what she's really saying is that women will have to find their own weight of the sentence, their own way of using language, because everything that we learned, uh, even though it's called the mother tongue, it, we learn it from, from what men have written, don't we? And how then, how do we shape that into something that becomes us and our language in our mother tongue and form sentences that work for us. And that's what Wolf's talking about there, and that's of works so well with this. Sheila Delaney just doing her own thing in her own way. Of course, they destroyed her. She didn't have the infrastructure to survive, that young woman, which is partly why I've had to survive, you know. Um, I'm still here after 40 years. It's nearly 40 years since oranges are not the only fruit. And that business at the end, fuck them, I can write my own. It's really saying, you are not going to kill me. I'm not going to get drunk, right? I'm not, I'm not going to go away and disappear. I'm not going to, because 
dissolve into mental health issues. I'm going to go on doing my writing until I die so that other women coming along can say, she did it, just as other women have been for me. Those lighthouses, those beacons, so that I can do it. We pass it on, one by one by one. Don't we? Yes. That's it. So. Some of the things that you then, many years later, faced when you were trying to really remake a language and to help all those who followed you to find their own voices. That must resonate yes. very particularly with you. It does. I mean, I've been through terrible things in, with the press and uh, awful criticism. Uh, about my person, really, because everything, everything, if you're a woman, comes down to biography and biology, doesn't it? You can't, it can't be imagination. Um, it's, you know, who, who you're sleeping with, how much money you earn, what, all of the, 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 the crassness, the coarseness, which is really a way of, of, of trying to kill the imaginative life of women, or any artist, but, but women particularly suffer from this, because everything is always brought back to biography and biology, which I hated. I wanted the life of the mind. You know, I wanted the imagination. I wanted the spirit. Orange is not the only out. fruit Sorry. is also such a call to arms. I've only just read it, and I know you wrote it when you were 24, but it, it, it genuinely feels like, <laughs> let's go, let's go. Like, it feels like she's running, and you're like, oh, oh, wait, we should also, we should follow her. It's uh, some of my, I think mainly, I don't know, I, I find most of my favorite writing encourages, multipli encourages multiplicity, that it goes like, wait, well, I want to do that now. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. And it must be very striking for you too, because as I was saying in my little introduction, you're about to claim the space. You've made a short film, I know, but this is your feature film debut that's coming, which again is a field that is only recently felt truly open to women. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, this, this has been a, a really difficult thing to get off the ground because it is incredibly marginal. It's, it does not have standardized commercial appeal because nobody wants to believe in anything that hasn't been proven before. And this, this is, I don't want to say it's like messy and dirty and dark, even though it is, because it's some of the most exuberant text I've ever read, and it's the most physical text I've ever read. And I, I don't think it's, I don't think there's a reason to make every good book a movie. But this one is, is, is screaming out to be living and alive. And it will be very different from the book. And it was, it's been really, oh man, like a real long haul just slog trying to get people to be like, yes, here are millions of dollars to tell this woman's story because it is not one that is easy. Um, but we're, we're doing it. I think we're gonna have to shoot in Europe, to be honest. I think it's the only way to get it done. In the States, they're like, this is making me uncomfortable. Oh, for God. <laughs> What's wrong with being uncomfortable? That's another word like difficult, isn't it? That yes. we, we can't do. Just be uncomfortable and you'd be difficult. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Very, well, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable as a woman or else you literally <laughs> will never say a word. <laughs> well, this has been a remarkable morning, I think, of inspiration and connection. As someone who comes from the literary world, I have been so grateful for Chanel's commitment to literature. So grateful to Kristen and Jeanette and to Charlotte, who is the inspiration behind all of this. So I'm going to let yeah. you close out, Charlotte. Well, thank, thank you so you much. Thank you so much for everything. And it was such a special moment. Thank you.
And thank you, Chanel, for giving me the opportunity to create moments like this. And this is very unique for a fashion brand to take that risk. And thank you. And thank you all for coming.